So hello and welcome to Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and I want to firstly uh, apologise for very long hiatus for those of you who are loyal listeners. Uh, as you know, this does happen from time to time. I think it's been almost three or four months since the last episode. So I'm sorry for the long gap. To uh, refresh you about that, because it's been so long, um, you may not remember, it was really about taming the mind through shamatha or tranquil abiding meditation something that many of us have at least some basic familiarity with. You know, so when you hear of someone meditating or wanting to start a meditation practice, this is what most of us usually think about, shamatha. And we usually think about this in terms of qualities of serenity and calm and focus and relaxation, anti-stress, anti-anxiety. So meditation in the general often has these kinds of associations or connotations. But in the end of that episode, all those months ago, I said that taming the mind through shamatha meditation is like sitting down on the couch at the therapist's office. Which is to say, it might be somewhat comfortable and indeed relaxing. But if you actually want to receive some psychological help, you need to do more than just sit there on the couch. You need to start talking about your problems and your therapist needs to start listening and analysing. Just sitting there silently on the couch really isn't going to take you very far. So that is what you're really looking for to get psychological help, to get therapy, is proper, diligent, considered investigations. Some analysis. Analysis which hopefully produces tangible insight. And all of this occurs through the process of dialogue, right? Fairly obvious point. So today what I'm going to do is speak about a form of meditation which is also principally about analysis and investigation and is aimed at producing insight. And in fact, it's sometimes translated simply as insight meditation. In fact, some of you may well know the Pali Vipassana or Vipassana in the Sanskrit. So today I want to probe into this a little bit. And really my aim is to make the case that the Dharmic traditions in general offer us one of the most refined and productive and elegant of all philosophical tools that can be deployed to assist spiritual life. So I am in part going to argue that insight meditation is a properly philosophical method. Before I jump into this task, I want to stress the relationship between vipassana and shamatha forms of meditation. Um, and the point here is really that you can't really begin insight meditation if your mind is really unstable and unconcentrated. So the real point of shamatha, in fact the only point really, is taming the mind to the point where you can really begin to investigate 
what the nature of your mind is or isn't. That is, you need a certain level of mental stability and concentration in order to properly begin and undertake such investigations. So as a rough metaphor, imagine going home after a very long day of work and maybe a beer or two, and then trying to read classical text of some kind, something rigorous and, and analytically dense. Now, if you're anything like me, you won't get very far because you just won't have the requisite focus and clarity to really read diligently and carefully and garner some proper understanding. So you'll most likely put the text down and head for some Netflix where your tired mind can be a little bit more passive and just soak up what's on offer. But if you wake up the next morning refreshed and renewed and you have a nice strong cup of coffee, you'll find reading and understanding that difficult text far, far easier. And you'll be able to stay with it and you'll be able to go where it goes. So the point here is that you need at least some degree of stability and concentration and freshness in your mind to begin the task of insight meditation for exactly the same reason. You need to be able to stay with your mind. You need to be able to go where it goes and to be able to look with genuine penetration into the object of your investigation. And so you really need quite a lot of clarity for such a task. You can't do it with an unruly, tired, flabby, flatulent kind of mind that's going all over the place. Assuming we're committed to this, the question really is, what might we be trying to see? What are we really looking for or investigating? What kind of insights are we trying to produce? Now, these are very big questions. And, you know, the answer to them is going to depend on what kind of tradition or method one is utilising or practising in. So I'm going to leave that somewhat open-ended. Kashmiri Shivaism will have a different approach to Burmese, Theravada or Kaji Mahamudra, right? So you need the specifics of those traditions to really answer that properly. But it's also true that no matter what kind of prior commitments one might have, or what kind of tradition or method one is practically involved with. At the end of the day, we are all just humans sitting on a cushion trying to see with our minds what our minds are, right? So there's a kind of natural openness here that I would like to exploit, and I think a lot of those traditions also tend to exploit. In this sense, it doesn't really matter if you are theistic or atheistic or dharmic or Western, or scientific, or secular, or just a real messy hodgepodge of uncertainty on these kinds of questions. Because the task in the end is really quite simple, and I think, and that's probably why so many of these Dharmic traditions are genuinely practiced now in the 21st century in non-Dharmic cultures, because the task is simple. It's just sit and investigate, look, study, analyze. There is a kind of, I'd say, almost an inherent non-dogma to that kind of task, which is not to say that dogma um, does not intrude or step in in certain places. Clearly it does. In any case, the real point I want to make here is that, is that when we contemplate what philosophical tools might be useful for spiritual life, this kind of meditation ought to be treated as precisely such a tool. And indeed, it is just a tool. It's just a technique or method. It's not a panacea in and of itself. It's not the answer to all of life's problems. It's 
not an end in itself, it's a tool that you can use and maybe begin to master a bit and certain things might follow from successfully using this tool. But what kinds of insights is insight meditation aimed at? What are we trying to accomplish when we go investigating or analysing? If stillness and concentration and calm are the fruit of shamatha meditation, then what is the fruit of vipassana? And this is where all the dharmic traditions become extremely brazen in their confidence of human potentiality, because all of them assert in different ways that it's possible to extend one's insight and understanding as deeply as reality itself goes. It's hard to find a more confident outlook of human nature than this. The Sanskrit word for reality is satya, and it is also the word for truth. So truth and reality are taken to be two sides of the same coin. The epistemic, the means of knowing reality, and the metaphysical, the nature of reality itself, co-emerge together. And so aiming for this is kind of, I think it's a step that clearly separates the properly capital S spiritual from the more wellness bowl, yoga class, chia seed kind of spiritual. In that the former adopt this brazen confidence from the Dharmic traditions that something like Bodhi or awakening or true seeing or true knowing is indeed possible for human beings. And that if it is indeed possible, it probably ought to be the pinnacle of human life because what else could be higher or more noble or better to aim for? So insight meditation across the traditions aims at insight into the nature of reality itself, into the nature of mind itself, into the nature of self itself, which may turn out to be a lack of self or a much, much more subtle notion of self. And framed in the negative, it's always aimed at uprooting avidya, uh, which is a Sanskrit word for primal ignorance. Now, at this point, we arrive at a proper juncture in the relationship between philosophy and spiritual life. And it's a juncture framed by the simple question, how can we really know if these dharmic kind of claims about awakening or bodhi are really true? Should we believe them or should we doubt them? What reasons might justify belief? What reasons might justify doubt? And if the whole thing is somehow beyond reason, then what are we left with to make some kind of judgment or choice? Now, on one level or another, it becomes very necessary to ask these kinds of questions. Because the way that you answer them is going to strongly determine the level of effort and energy that you put into something like insight meditation. So that is, if you strongly believe that, yes, such a thing as awakening or true insight is possible, and that insight meditation is a method or tool to accomplish this, then you're going to end up much more diligent in cultivating that method compared to someone who doesn't really believe that. So conversely, if you strongly believe that there's actually a lot of myth-making and ideology and religious fabrication going on in all of these dynamic traditions, then there's actually very few good reasons to pursue insight meditation at all. I mean, why would you bother? There might still be some good reasons for developing shamatha. And as I talked about this last episode with respect to 
GPs and psychologists and so forth all advocating for things like mindfulness training, one could pursue it for those sorts of reasons. But there's much less incentive um, to go for the insight version. So, you know, you have to work this out from your own side. I've personally wavered between both of those positions at various times, but ultimately I'm on the side of believing. And I don't think that philosophy can help very much in answering these kinds of questions. They're more matters of the palate, in that you have to go and do some tasting, some experiencing. And I mean this quite seriously. I mean, if you're really interested, you should probably go off to India and find an ashram or a gompa and just see how it all tastes. Get some experiences. Well, these days, uh, you don't really need to go all that far to meet with an authentic Dharmic tradition. But the point is that most people who end up authentic practitioners in such a tradition do so because they've received certain experiences, not because they've reasoned this way or that way, and therefore assented to this belief or that belief. And more than a few have done such a thing and tasted something rather bitter and noxious. So it's not a given that you'll tap into some dharmic stream and taste some nectar and then suddenly become convinced at the efficacy of, um, of that tradition. The point is it's really up to you um, and you should see that there are very serious dangers in either accepting or rejecting too hastily any of these claims about awakening or true insight or true knowledge. It's ultimately very slippery and dangerous terrain. And, you know, that's probably why I'm always tiptoeing around it to some degree. Now, for the sake of the podcast, I'm going to assume that you've had a little taste of something or other that induces you to experiment with an insight meditation practice. And from this point, we can ask, well, okay, well, what might be really going on once we're sitting down on the cushion attempting such a thing? Well, the first thing to be clear about is that all the Dharmic traditions share the basic predicate that there is some kind of transformation or transition from a state of avidya, of ignorance or unknowingness, to a state of bodhi or jnana, true knowledge or wisdom. And this really tells us that at root, it is a critical process, a process of negation, one is really trying to actively undermine something, to tear something down, to tear down a solid wall, if you will, to uncover something which has been concealed, to find something which is normally hidden. So really, in most traditions, it's a deconstructive process, not a process of building something. And so a large part of the job of insight meditation is to correctly identify what is this thing in the way? What might it actually be? How can I find it? And then how can I tear it down? So first you have to find it, and that's not necessarily easy. And only then is it possible to start tearing it down. And central to this deconstructive task is seeing a kind of gap between appearance and reality. That is, the way reality appears to you or is interpreted through your particular lens and the way reality actually is. And I've talked about this gap before. It crops up all the time in Western thinking from Plato to Hegel. And it's certainly a very common notion in Indian thinking. From Nagarjuna, the great Buddhist pundit, to Shankara, the great Vedanta pundit. And the real point about avidya, that's ignorance, is that it shapes your very apprehension of reality all the time 
such that this apprehension can be called illusory or even a straight-up illusion in the case of Neo-Vedanta. It's a really strong claim here, which is that all the perceptions you have about your reality, deeply subjective, deeply shaped by your mood and your culture, your theories, your horizons, they, in the final analysis, are merely appearances to your mind. But there's always something more fundamental, more primordial, which is wrapped up in this, but which we tend to not see or miss or be obscured from. So insight meditation is largely about teasing out the difference between appearances of things to your mind and your mind itself co-merging with phenomenal reality itself. Now, if that sounds rather lofty and profound and maybe even an impossible project, well, that's because it is to some degree. There's profundity there and there is impossibility there. But there is, in the same breath, something quite down-to-earth and practical. Because the tool that we're using is one that we all already possess. And the thing we're trying to look into, that is, our mind and its interrelation with reality, is something that we are already dealing with 100% of the time in any case. So we're not adding anything. We're just actually trying to look at what we're already doing a bit more closely. And I'd probably go a step further here. I'd put it to you that all of us have in us, this is just my own speculative notion here, all of us have this sort of curiosity or urge to know about these very fundamental kinds of questions. What we are, who we are, what our minds are, how they function, what reality is, how all these things fit together. I think this kind of a natural curiosity in in most people at least. And sometimes this becomes really intense and bursts out of us and we feel compelled to try and find some good answers. If we follow the practice of insight meditation in whatever form, we're kind of taking responsibility to investigate these things from our own side. Whereas I think uh, um, a common default response at the moment, collectively, you know, now in the 21st century, is to kind of default to the experts and find a really good, solid theory. Whether it's Jung or Lacan or Jordan Peterson or Slavo Žižek, we sort of want a model that explains all of this, that we can adopt, and that we can then be comfortable in believing in or subscribing to. Or the alternative is the more QAnon-style rejection of all experts in favour of some purely subjective but shared internet madness. Uh, but, you know, I addressed that kind of problem in earlier episodes. Now, of course theory is important. I'm not suggesting that we do away with theory. And in fact, insight meditation itself across the different traditions always has theory underpinning it. What I am suggesting is that all theories and models ultimately have their limits and that at some point we have to start looking for ourselves and that insight meditation is really just such a looking. This looking or investigating for ourselves, the methods of insight meditation, can really be boiled down to one notion. And that is awareness. Awareness is a thing being deployed in virtually all forms of insight meditation. One is trying to develop awareness 
or bring out one's inherent awareness, and then bring that awareness into whatever one is investigating, so that what one was unaware of, one becomes aware of. And this is precisely how it leads to insight. And I think this is curiously absent from many traditional Western philosophical disciplines. I'm thinking in the context of the whole series, entitled, as I hope you recall, Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life, which I know I'm going to concede is a shitty title, but, you know, it makes sense. Most of what we've covered fits nicely into the various formal disciplines of Western philosophy, you know, that you would encounter if you stepped into a university department. Things like epistemology and logic and metaphysics and these kinds of things. But insight and awareness, or to frame it more clearly, awareness that leads you to gain insight, something you really do need the Indian Dharmic traditions for, at least until 20th century movements such as German phenomenology. And I think there's something of a juncture here between the old East and West in the privileging of different philosophical tools. Because to be very reductive about it, Western thinking has typically elevated reason and logic and what it can produce in terms of conceptual and theoretical models as the most central and important tool for human inquiry and understanding and knowledge. And if you go and study contemporary Western, especially analytic philosophy, you'll find almost infinite amounts of this, all very carefully and precisely written down and published. And a lot of it is, is great, you know, it's really good. But from the Indian Dharmic point of view, alongside a great proliferation of thinking which is produced by reason and logic, and which is going to take the form of this theory or that theory, is a privileging of a more direct and unmediated and refined means of gaining knowledge and understanding and insight. And this is through awareness itself. So I want to end the episode by just very lightly interrogating this notion. What is awareness and why is it useful in these kinds of ways? I think the hallmark of awareness is that it opens up an extremely important gap between everything that, everything that takes place in our lives, every experience that we ever have, and the actual awareness itself. So in a sense, a space emerges between the content of our lives and the awareness we have of this content. So when I say content, what do I mean? What is this content? Well, it's basically everything from the processes of our bodies, including sense impressions, sensations, to our feelings and perceptions and the more complex emotions, to our cognitions and thinking, to our interpretation and relationship to external events like airplanes landing on runways, someone trying to punch you in the face. And there's much that is kind of profound about this space emerging. And it's articulated by all the high-sounding terms deployed by the various Dharmic traditions, that, you know, the realizations of Brahma, or Anatta, or Shunyata, or Parusha, or the paths of Mahamudra, or Ati Yoga. You know, the path to the summit begins with the emergence of this kind of space. This gap between reflective awareness and all the content of our experience. So we can go very high here, especially if we're believers in, in the claims of Bodhi and awakening. But aside from that, aside from this kind of spiritual potentiality of this profundity, which, you know, which I said before, probably requires a bit of tasting this and that to see if you even believe it's possible. Aside from this, 
there are far more practical, down-to-earth and therapeutic dimensions. Returning yet again to the analyst couch, which I seem to return a lot to, if you think about almost all of the trauma and turbulence that we suffer from, occurs when there's no gap at all between our experience of something horrible or difficult and our sense of self going through that experience. That is, we go through it in complete imminence. And so it feels so, so proximate to who we are. There's no distance from it. Without reflexive awareness, whatever happens to our bodies in terms of physical pain or illness or harm or our emotions or our thinking, it happens very, very directly to our sense of me, a concrete, imminent, egocentric sense of self. We are just the thing being hurt or having a shitty experience. Awareness builds a gap into this raw experience of suffering or trauma. And if you have developed a robust ability through insight meditation to access and increase your awareness, then you can get really good at exploiting the space between your awareness and your experience. Your awareness and the content. And then you can really abide with the former, with your awareness. And this makes the latter, the content of your experience, something much, much more spacious and playful. Shitty things may still occur. But when they occur, they occur more as a play of something that you can witness or watch rather than, hap rather than something that's happening so viscerally to you as a very concrete, imminent being. Now that might sound a bit like disassociation, which is clearly, by any measure, a psychological problem rather than a solution. But no, it's not really of that order. Think about the difference between you as a little kid not getting something you really, really wanted and you as an adult. As a kid, there's sort of no real gap between your desire and your sense of who you are. So it just feels really, really bad. And you might even cry uncontrollably. As an adult, it's true for some of us we might be in the same boat there, but for most of us, we've got better at reasoning and using our reasoning to either find a different path toward the object, or if it can't be acquired, to just jettison it from our range of concerns with some kind of rational platitude or another. So, you know, when someone eats the last custard donut right in front of me, I'm going to openly admit here that it does hurt. But I'll say something to myself like, well, you know, I really shouldn't be eating gluten anyway. And anyway, when I get home, I'll make a chocolate sundae and all will be good. It's probably going to be even better than the donut. So, you know, the pain of the lack of desire is diffused through reason and the desire is deferred, perhaps to even be more greatly fulfilled later down the track. Right? So the point is you develop this capacity. That pattern of being able to reason away the sense of not getting the object of desire is something that we acquired through time. It's like a skill that we developed that makes us different from when we were five years old. And the point here is that the awareness developed through insight meditation is very, very similar. It's like a skill or attribute which we develop through time or access through time, depending on the tradition, and then it's simply there to utilize in life situations, be they very mundane and ordinary or traumatic, like losing a donut, or even beautiful. So I suppose what I'm really getting at here is this notion of a, a dissolution or semi-dissolution of our solid sense of, of self. 
I don't mean this in any lofty or philosophical sense, but much more crude, egocentric orientation, which always and automatically is at the heart of our experience, the locus of ourselves as the center of the universe. And the proposition is really that there's something more intrinsic, more subtle, more primordial, more open, more spacious that we can abide in. And this thing is basically awareness. Now, all the Dharmic traditions are oriented towards this notion of moksha, which is this notion of freedom or liberation. So there's a really important sense uh, in which properly uncovering this form of awareness brings about something indescribably emancipatory. But I'm really talking on a different level than this. I'm saying independent of such lofty notions of freedom or moksha, and even independent of notions of dealing better with painful experiences, the really crucial thing is that awareness produces insight. Insight produces understanding. And these two things, insight and understanding, are the absolute gold of human life. So what we have here is a philosophical tool for spiritual life which can produce gold. And there's so much more that might be said about this, but I'm going to leave it here for today. Thanks for listening, and keep checking in at naratehouse.com.au. Such to God.